Our liberties we prize and our rights we will maintain. This is Iowa Civil Rights History Podcast, where we tell stories about the contribution Iowans and the state of Iowa has made to advance the civil rights movement. Past stories are being told, present actions will be highlighted, and preparation for the future will be discussed. Here is your host, Eric Nyange. Welcome to the Iowa Civil Rights History Podcast. My guest today is Akil Clark. Akil is the founder of the Spark Foundation. Spark is the Des Moines-based foundation started in 2018. The purpose of the foundation is to reduce the reading achievement gap, to improve reading assessment score, and to give greater motivation and interest in reading to elementary school students by ensuring every student has the opportunity to build their very own personal library, regardless of their income level. I like that goal, man. Thank you. Thank I, you. I, I appreciate it, man. I, I really like that goal. Well, welcome to the show, man. Thanks. Thanks for having me, man. It's a pleasure to be on. This is great. How you feeling? How you feeling? Everything good? Yeah, man. Everything's been really good. You know, uh, COVID was, the, the whole year was kind of crazy, but just extremely motivated to get everything going again, you know, hitting full steam next year. Yeah. When did you develop the love of reading? As a child. I read a lot. One of the reasons why I read, for the same reason a lot of kids read or a lot of adults read, is like escapism, trying to find a book or a story that kind of takes you away from your surroundings. And also for, for educational reasons, but more so for fun as a kid. I grew up in Des Moines, Iowa. Grew up off of 16th and Hickman in Des Moines. Single parent household, lots of stuff going on around me. And one of the things that was always kind of there to neutralize everything that was going around on around me were books. Like we always had books in the house and I was, I was lucky that my mom was really big on ensuring that we had books in the house. So that was what I gravitated toward. You say you were reading to escape. What what were you trying to escape? You know, when I was a kid, man, things were pretty rough growing up and seeing domestic violence seeing violence in the neighborhood, not having a real positive male influence. Uh, my mom did everything she could, worked three jobs. So a lot of times it was it was me and my brother at home at a young age, or we'd be with family members. And, you know, some of the people that were my family members and people that I looked up to weren't necessarily always doing, you know, what might have been considered the right thing yeah. to be doing. And I'm, I'm not judging anybody for doing what they need to do. Mm to survive and, you know, to make it through what everybody was going through at the time, but trying to make sure that I was able to cope with my surroundings, it it, it shut everybody out. It Mm. was something I could do that shut all the noise out. And you know what I found when I had a book in my hand, no one really messed with me. (laughs) You know? Yeah, he's a a smart kid. Leave him alone. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, if I ever wanted to get out of doing something mm. as a kid, I could just go read a book and my mom would just let me be. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and that's that's the crazy thing about book, man. If you're so absorbed to the book, the book can take you places that you never imagined or you just never even thought it's possible. You could just create your own imagination. Yeah. I mean, you you learn not only like how to use your imagination through the stories that you read, mm-hmm. but then also how to interpret the world around you. Yeah. You start to look at the world around you very differently. 
or it's something oh, yeah. you read, or you or you understand the world around you a little bit better. And you know, as a kid, I wasn't reading books that were truly helping me understand my surroundings. For, you know, there wasn't a lot of books that talked about in the early '90s. There wasn't a lot of books for kids that talked about having a father who was in prison or having family members who were uh, on drugs or uncles and aunts who were alcoholics, you know, or in and out of jail. Those books didn't really exist for black kids or maybe just kids in general, but they definitely didn't exist for black kids. And so as we look now, we're starting to see a ton of books come out that, that are telling stories for kids who are going through what we went through. It's fantastic. How old were you when your father went to prison? I want to say I was like four. I, you know, I don't remember it. The first time I met him that I remember is I was 13. Wow. So is he home now? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Out okay. and, uh, yeah, working. And, you know, uh, man, it's, it's, it's really crazy how life works because my love of reading and the books that I read now and what I grew up reading once I, you know, started reading for knowledge were really influenced by my father and the things that he went through and trying to learn again, like I said, you know, learning to understand the world that we grew up in Uh and why a lot of African American people are are in the position they're in. My dad was able to put me on to some books that really talked about that and gave me a wider understanding of the world. He got me into, you know, civil rights. Mm. He got me into history. He got me into understanding politics and reading about uh, that type of stuff. So, yeah, he's, he's home and, um, you know, we're building a relationship and just, you know, you take it day by day. Yeah, that's, that's good. Let's get to the Spark Foundation, man. What is Spark Foundation and what do you do? Maybe let's start there. Man, the Spark Foundation is an organization in which we want to share a love of reading and spark a love of reading for students who live in areas in which they might not have constant access to books. Sometimes they call them book deserts, but we went a little bit further than that. And we looked at, all right, we want to provide books that are not only gauging, but we want to provide books that are culturally relevant, reflect the diversity of the community and we really grew from there. So we are providing high quality books to kids between the grades of first grade, fifth grade. We're giving them books that they might never otherwise get their hands on. And we're doing it at absolutely no cost to the school, no cost to the family. And just proud to be able to say that we're putting these extremely high quality books into their homes that family members are going to be able to keep. They're going to be able to be proud of the books that they have in their library. How you guys go about doing that? How do you even know kids need books? So it is, uh, it actually started with, um, you know, I, I lived in Des Moines my entire life. I was the PTA president mm-hmm. at my daughter's school. And as the PTA president, uh, part of that had to do with setting up book fairs. And I remember book fairs as a kid, I'd be really excited. And so since we didn't have a lot of engagement from the parents, myself and my wife, we would run the book fair every time it came through. It was like three times a year, mm. like uh, two or three days or something like that. And the kids and their parents would come through 
that you would quickly be able to see, all right, some kids are able to buy books and some kids can't. Once I started finding out those kids who weren't able to buy books, they would come and they would just say, hey, are these books free? And unfortunately, you know, we were selling those books through Scholastic. The books were not free. I started noticing teachers buying books out of their own pocket. And we saw a lot of kids um, leave, you know, upset. You know, their parents wouldn't let them walk into the book fair because they didn't want to have to tell them no. That that was so heartbreaking because now getting young kids who are interested in reading, I I think all kids want to read. But, you know, as you start to have negative experiences, let's say you start to push those to the side. Okay, well, maybe books aren't for me. Mm-hmm. Whatever goes through a young kid's head. And then, so I just started doing some research. And it was like, what I was able to find is only 20% of our students, our black boy students are reading at level, was just unacceptable. As I was looking at that, it definitely told me, okay, something has to be done. Because we know that reading level is linked to so many things and future success, mm-hmm. whether or not it is, you know, just graduation rates, um, economic mobility after, you know, post-secondary education or secondary education. But also we know that they use these reading rates for the building of prison. And the fact that so many black male students were below level, it, it made me start asking why. How is this possible and why aren't we doing more about it? And I I didn't see anything being done about it. And so it was one of those moments where it was, I got to do something, right? I can't wait for someone else to do something. Oh, oh yeah. That's really where it came from. So that was the spark for you when you start seeing those numbers? Absolutely. It was so disheartening Mm. because when I started to look at it, we were able to see that. DMPS or Des Moines Public Schools, 76% of the students qualify for free or reduced lunch. You say 76? 76% of the students. Wow. Yeah, qualify for free or reduced lunch. Wow. When you look at that number, they say, all right, so we have a, a high number of students who are in economic hardship or homes, you know, that need economic assistance. Well, these are the same, you know, these same numbers are showing that there's a correlation between economics and reading levels and the amount of books in the house. So I, I had told you, I grew up with the Panthers as a huge influence on me. I immediately went to that there's an economic barrier to purchasing books. And we have put books and reading achievement behind a paywall. There's only so much that can be done at school. Mm. And we need to eradicate that paywall however we can. And so as a community, what are we going to do about it? We're either going to be okay with the fact that so many of our black and brown male students are struggling, or we're going to you know, put our money where our mouth is. And you're doing just that. You, you started in 2018. That's not too long ago. How many books have you already put in the hands of these young boys and girls? We put just over 8,500 books into the hands of students in the Morton Public Schools. And that is working with approximately four to 500 students. 
and they get to keep these books. They don't bring them back anything like that. You just buy them brand new and you just give to them. They build their own libraries at home. Yes, sir. And that man, that's the key. That's the key. And let me tell you why that's so key to ensuring that the families learn, you know, their their younger brothers and sisters really learn about the value of books. You know, when someone gives you something and it's yours, you take a little bit more value in that. Everyone likes to show off a nice library. But when I was a kid, and one of the things that really drove me to this, Eric, is when I was a kid, I couldn't get a library book. I went to the library and I, I was told I couldn't get a book. Mm. And the reason why I couldn't get a book is because I had fees. You know, if I have fees and I can't go to the library and get a book, I can't afford to pay for the fees. Where am I supposed to get books from? And so we didn't we didn't want a student feeling bad for losing their book. Something happened to it. You know, that that's theirs. We want them to have a good relationship with it. So that was a major factor in them keeping that book and hopefully displaying it and sharing it with their family. Yeah. People will tell you, come on now, Kel. There's public libraries everywhere. What do you mean kids cannot get the books? They can go to any public library if they don't have a fees. What do you say to that? I say in theory, that's fantastic. <laughs> All right. So we know that in most households, there's two parents who live in the household. The majority of our families, like I said, are receiving free and reduced lunch, which means they're under some sort of economic threshold. And we have a lot of kids who may not have direct access to a library. So just about every school we work with, the library is outside of walking distance for a four or fifth grade student. Mm. Um, one of the schools we work with, the closest library is over four miles away. So if we got a parent and we're all, you know, we're all working adults, unless you're a student listening to this, then, you know, thank you for listening. But if you're a working adult, you know, getting off and going to the library and cooking dinner and doing all those things can be very difficult. So it's not always possible for a kid to get to the library. And to prove that point, you can ask teachers and administrators. Sometimes it's hard just to get these kids to come to conferences, right? Because parents are busy. So we take those books actually directly to the school instead of saying, hey, you know what? I need you to work for this book. Eric, right now we're telling kids that they need to hunt out these books in a library that's big. It could be a little intimidating. Yeah. We're taking these books directly to them where they're at mm. and saying, guess what? You get to pick out X number of books to take home. We're cutting the uh, barriers. Yeah. And that's, that's what we should all be focused on. Just meet where they are. Absolutely. Yeah. You you work with schools then to do this. So you just supply these books to school because the teachers are the one who they're very close to the student. So they know exactly who they need to give these books to. Is that why you work with schools? That's a really good question, Eric. And one of the reasons why we work with schools is because we know that the students are going to be there. Now, of course, not every student is at school every day, but especially in uh, the elementary setting, we know that there are laws and regulations around going to school. Now, they might switch schools a lot, 
And so we know that we can reach them there easier than we could in many different other scenarios. And that's one of the reasons why we work with the schools. In addition to that, the teachers have been phenomenal because they understand how important it is what we're doing. And so we've been able to set up great partnerships with teachers who are saying, you know what, I have a student who's having a hard time getting interested in reading. What kind of books do you have that you think he may be interested in? And they can kind of gear them towards the book. But again, the books we send are going to be different than what they might find somewhere else. They've they've been fantastic. Do you think this is the fighting world that we need to really, really focus on it? Otherwise, 50 years from now, we're going to be in huge, huge trouble to get our kids to the reading level that they need to be? I would say yes, absolutely. And, you know, it might feel kind of strong to say that this is a new war that we're at. But we know that in order for our students in the inner city to achieve as much as they can, the reading levels for everyone needs to come up. It can't just be certain segments of the population. If we look at the surrounding areas, if we look at the suburbs, they don't have the the low reading level. And so there's going to continuously be a gap. If you are not reading that level, we know that you're going to have a harder time in the future. And that's not for every scenario, but that's just in general. You know, the majority of individuals who deal with people that deal with the criminal justice system aren't strong readers. Oh, yeah. I mean, it really opens up so much. Yeah. How much do you think that contribute in a high level of dropout? If I'm getting in maybe 10th grade or 11th grade and my reading level is on 4th grade, it's kind of embarrassing, to be honest. How much do you think that plays a huge part of it? All plays, it plays a huge role. Um, at that point, you know, those kids are just wavering, right? And it doesn't take a whole lot at that point. If, if I can't read at level, I'm unable to keep up with my assignments. You know, my writing's not going to be on point. I might be able to phase through a bit, but it's not going to take a lot to push someone over the edge mm. if they've been able to skate through their reading level isn't where it needs to be in high school. But if they drop out, then they're going to definitely have a harder time. But what we focus on with Spark is providing books that we believe not only are going to teach children things, but provide children books that they want to read. And when I say books that they want to read, I mean, we're putting books with characters that look like them as the main character. And so when we say we're starting at first grade, Yeah, it's because we know that they need to read at level by third grade. Let me tell you something. I keep getting books featuring Jack and the Beanstalk, Disney characters, things that don't connect to my life. And then I get a book featuring a character that looks like me. His name's Jabari. Mm. It's a story about a young black man or a young black kid and his black father who are learning how to build rockets, that changes my perception. Absolutely. That changes how I look at not only myself in a positive light, how I look at my community 
black men, black fathers, and whoa, here's a book that reflects the people who look like me. I want to read more of that. Mm. So we starting from the beginning with it, and we're saying, you know, we're going to share books about uh, Muslims. Yeah. We're going to share books about people that are from different walks of life um, because we want everyone to see themselves represented and hopefully they see something worth worthwhile and they, they change your attitude towards reading. Mm-hmm. And I, I, think, I, I hope I answered your question there. Yeah. Oh. Sure <laughs> yes, yes, you did. And you just, you just sparked something else in me too. How much is that then? Since there were not that many books that young black boys can say, oh, this is talking to me. This, this boy in this book is just like me. How much you think that then made them not be interested in reading? I, I think it's big. I think it's big. There's more books out that are published yearly that feature cars and animals mm-hmm. and fictional, you know, non-human characters than there are black boys or, you know, Latino boys and girls black girls and so when you're constantly being promoted or being pushed books and you see other kids in your class well they get to see books with characters that look like them it starts to make you ask questions about being worthy are, are we worthy of these books and i'm going to tell you there's there's also a flip side to this you know these schools are not all minority we work with students of all backgrounds. When you have students who are white and they don't see books featuring black characters, it limits what they're able to learn about the people who also are within their neighborhood. Mm. They don't get that window to see what Akil's life's like, even if it's through a book, because every book I get is a reflection of my community, maybe someone at my church. And so they're getting a major disservice as well. And as they grow up, that does not help any type of relation, right? Mm. I'm going to give you an example. This is real. This, this just happened. My daughter is going to a camp and the boy said, why are you so much darker than me? And she said, it's because my dad's black. And he said, so that means your dad's in jail. Wow. But that just proves my point that when you have students that don't get to see an average representation or positive representation of a black family in the books they get, Mm -hmm. because all they get are books that feature white families, they as children will draw the conclusions that they are being fed through the media. Mm. So everyone's being disturbed by what, you know, what we've been seeing happening. That's powerful, man. I never looked at it that way. So basically we are not doing nobody good in the society because we're not learning from each other. No, absolutely. I mean, and, and, you know, to take it to that next level of extreme in, in essence, what we're doing is we're giving, those students, you know, we're giving them an inflated sense of uh, worth, right? You know, there's no books written about these guys. Their stories must not be important. Mm -hmm. You know, the story of the Latin American struggle 
must not be that important. It's not in the book. Because I don't see it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. No teacher gives it to me. Yeah. So it, it's it's really harmful to everybody. Wow. Where does Sparks get the books from? So we, we work with a number of people. Um, writers? We work with uh, we work with writers directly. Uh, we've done some really cool things recently. We've started to try to expand a little bit. We've worked with a fantastic writer named Ty Allen Jackson. He writes a book called Danny Dollar about a boy who loves basketball, but he doesn't want to play basketball. He wants to be an owner of a basketball team. It's about financial success. I like that. And it's written towards a young urban male, right? A kid who likes basketball, but, oh, maybe there's more money in it this way. We've worked with other writers that have written history books. And just recently, we, we started seeing that that is a big push to the students, not only to be able to read the book, but to meet the author. So we're trying to do a lot more of that. And then we get a large number of our books, either if not directly from an author, then from a fabulous nonprofit called First Book Marketplace. That allows us to purchase the books at a extremely fair price. So we're able to continue doing what we're doing. With, without that program, we would not be able to uh, make this work. One of our most successful books called Dictionary for a Better World. The coolest thing about this book, Dictionary for a Better World, you know, it wasn't like your typical storybook. We gave it to our fourth grade classes, and it was books that talked about what's respect, what is empathy. You know, how do I listen to my friends, and how do I connect with the problems they have? One of the coolest stories that came out of a book is during COVID, we had a a student whose brother was really sick. Students were very upset. They were having a hard time in class and they were talking about it. And one of the fourth grade students said, hold on, this is a chance for us to practice being empathetic. And the teacher said it blew her away because these weren't words that she's used to fourth graders utilizing. But, you know, when you put it in front of them and you walk through it with them and you you know, get them to utilize it and practice it at home, they're going to pick up these things that are going to help them interact better with each other. Amen to that. Now, you already reached 400 students. How many more you're trying to reach? 400 students is a lot, but you don't seem like a guy who's about to stop anytime soon, though. <laughs> uh, man, 400 students is a lot, but there's, there's a lot more that we could hit. We haven't even scratched the surface, so Des Moines Public Schools, there's about 13,000 elementary students. And we know that books contain knowledge and that is going to help them all throughout their lives. What we want to see, we want books to be treated like food. Mm. We, we want to remove that economic barrier. I want to see a scenario where we're able to set up no-cost book fairs at each of the schools in Des Moines Public Schools and allow students to come, even if it's just once a year, to come pick out books that are interested to them that they get to take home. Now, our goal is to help each student we work with get up to 10 books a year. And that's that's a goal that we're striving for. And that's, you know, what we want to continue to reach for. 
But until we're able to get to that point, the more students we're able to get books into the hands of, the better. And so right now we got four schools. We're trying to look at a couple more. You know, next year I would love to see our numbers double, you know, as long as the income allows it. And right now, you know, we work strictly off of donations and grants. And if, if we're fortunate enough to make that happen next year, we will. But if not, we'll, we'll keep grinding until we get there. Can the people contribute to the Spark Foundation? Yes, they can. They can contribute directly at our website, sparkfndn.org. People do have the ability to contribute through payroll deductions, or you can do it directly through Facebook. Okay. And all of this information is on, our, on your website? Yes, sir. Okay. Now, you say no cost fare. Is that the only way you guys distribute these books, no cost fare, and just drop them off at the school? No, man. So this is, this is one of the coolest things. We do a couple of things. We do a book of the month in which we rotate grades. Every kid in that grade will get the same book, and this will be a book that we want to highlight. Okay. And then we do our no-cost book fairs. And before COVID, the way our no-cost book fairs would work is we would have someone go to the school and read a book. And part of this whole project was to get more diversity into the schools. We wanted to get people, again, that look like the community into the school. So we asked someone going to the school, read a book, and then we let them know, guess what? In two days, we got a book fair coming for you. And then we have men and women go into the school, set up the book fair. And as the kids are coming through, we're there greeting them and talking to them. And the smiles that we get are amazing because these are kids who don't, they're not used to seeing black men in the school. And so we're there um, helping them pick out books, talking to them about what they like. And, and during COVID, we did have to switch to where we were sending those books to the school and the teachers were setting them up and the kids were going through. And then we were maybe reaching out to them via Zoom. On top of that, we have been working with a local artist. Um, his name's Jordan Weber. He's a, a phenomenal, phenomenal artist um, raised in Des Moines, Iowa. He's done some pop-up book libraries for us outside of the barbershop. Mm. He's done one... Um, in a greenhouse. He's, he's done some really cool things. And when he does, he reaches out to us and we're able to get books into these pop-up libraries for him. Oh, wow. I want to circle back a little bit. Why did you call the foundation Spark? It was really tough. As, as I said before, my, my father was incarcerated when I was a kid. And Spark went through a number of different iterations before it became what it is now. And one of the ideas that I had is that I wanted to see children who have incarcerated family members spark a relationship between themselves and that incarcerated family member through a book. Mm. And so our first idea and one that we, you know, hope that we're able to get to was that if you were a third grade student 
and you had a father who was in the car who was incarcerated, I wanted to give you a copy of a book, your dad a copy of the same book, and hope that you guys write a letter and talk about that book. Mm. Wow. And so that way, when that individual gets out of jail, they've already sparked a relationship with their son or their daughter. They have something to and, connect. Yeah. And that that comes from my own personal experience. But that was, I wanted to spark a relationship. And as we continued to morph and grow and look at what was possible, it was, okay, we do want to spark a relationship with books. And once we get to the point where we can move forward, then we'll, we'll get to what my original goal was. We'll get there. But, you know, everything in time. Yes. I want to read you something and tell me what does this mean to you? Or if you can explain yeah. it a little bit. Access equal success. You know exactly where I found that. <laughs> yep. I, I, it is, man. Access equals success. What, what that means to me is when someone has the ability to obtain what they need, they're going to be able to grow. And the key thing that I always have to remind myself is that when emancipation occurred and when we knew it was time for young black men and women to go to school. They needed to have access to the school. And they knew from a very, you know, from the very beginning mm -hmm. that access to reading, that access to education, that they were going to be successful in life. And that's, that's just the history. You know, we, we can't deny that. Mm -hmm. Whether or not it was the creation of the black schools or the creation of schools in general or, you know, them teaching them to read when it was illegal. Mm -hmm. They knew that the access to that is key. What we have a situation now is where we see students who are not achieving in areas where we believe they should. And we know it's because they don't have the same access to the level of content that their peers are more economically well off have. They say a kid should have anywhere between 50 to 80 books in their house at their fingertips. The majority of the students we work with don't have that. And so if you grow up in a house where you have two parents who went to college and they have a library and, you know, you have access to friends and family who have books and you can just walk to a library, you have access that is so valuable. Yeah. And we want to provide that same thing. So to me, access 100% equals success. Now, you do need a push. You know, you could have all the access in the world, mm -hmm. but if you don't have the right people yeah. pushing you in the right direction, you know, it's, it's just going to sit there unopened. Oh, yeah. Um, so th that's what that means to me. What are some of the things that Sparks Foundation is struggling right now? Uh, male volunteers. The makeup of teachers in Iowa is very heavily skewed towards females. And we want to show that, you know, they, they get to see their teachers read. We want to see male volunteers of all backgrounds engaging with the students, 
and showing, hey, you know what? I like to read too, and this is who I am, and this is what I do. And uh, these are the types of books I like to read, and this is one that I have here to give to you guys. You know, that's just going to show that reading isn't something that is a reading something that's okay for boys to do. First, reading is okay for boys, and secondly, it starts to put other people in school. Once you start to put people from the community in the school, and now I see you at the park, we're able to have a little bit, you know, you become a fixture in that community. And strong community is key. As they say, you have strong family, you got strong community. I think it takes village to raise a, raise a child. But we can start to get more uh, men to volunteer and to step up and say, you know what? I can take an hour out of my day and go read the 30 kids and engage with them, then it would make a world of difference. So this gets done at school? Correct. Yeah. The Spark Foundation, we do have guidelines that we, that we run through. We do ask all of our volunteers to take a background check to make sure we know who we're sending to the school. But when we send someone to the school, we give them enough books that pass out that every kid in that classroom. So not only are you going with a book that you want to read, you get to give out a book, and that's something that they get to go home and talk about. And, you know, it's, it makes a difference in their day. Imagine this for a second. Let's say we get the reading achievement gap closed, and we're good. All the students good. What good would that bring? Hmm. That's a good question. I think if we were able to close the reading achievement gap, or at least narrow it, I think that's going to mean direct correlation towards lower incarceration rates, uh, understanding of our economic system, and the fact that so many minority men and women are put in positions in which our income levels are so much lower. So much of that comes from a knowledge that you get from reading. So when you go in and you, you now you buy your first loan and you understand you know, and you can't comprehend everything that is being proposed to you. You don't end up in bad loans. You're able to excel in college. You're able to better, you know, promote yourself. I think I think it lifts all boats if we're able to close that. It's a, a more even playing field. I, I think our um, our family dynamics will change. The the benefits on what can change is, has got to be astronomical. Mm-hmm. If we were able to do that and sustain it for a long period of time. Man, and you started doing that already. You're right on that path. That's the goal. And the hard thing is, is, you know, we've always said from the beginning, we're not teaching children to read. That That's a very hard job. We just want to give them the resources that are there and and hope that we can provide a positive influence. That's, that's all we want to do. And we, we want more people to help join our mission. Absolutely. What what are you reading right now yourself? Are you reading anything or anything you uh, re- you read recently? I am currently reading Harlem, uh, the biggest prison on earth, and that is about the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. And then I am also listening to a copy of the Education of Blacks in the South from 1860 to 1935. I, I do a mix. Audible when I'm in the car, 
reading, you know, physical books when I'm at home. Part of that's just because, man, there's just there's so much information out there. It's hard to digest. Yeah. If Dr. King and Malcolm X will pop up today, what do you think it will be their feeling and their view of the black community today? Are they going to be impressed or are they going to be disappointed? I would say that it would hard for them. It would be really hard for them to be anything but disappointed. Of course, there's things to be proud of. We got so many members of the black community that are doing amazing things, you know, but that's, that's the exception and not the rule. And I think one of the things that Martin Luther King stressed so much is loving each other, yeah. loving your brother as you love yourself. Mm. Right. He was a pastor. Yeah. And there's just too much of us not working together, not building these communities up that, you know, there's a lot of it going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, please don't get me wrong. I don't want anyone to get me wrong. There's a lot of it going on. I don't think that it's going on to the degree that they would hope to see. And I think with Malcolm X, I would say that, you know, the level of self harm that we are afflicting on each other, other. you know, that, that whole scenario where, you know, when you see your brother, you got to see yourself taking care of each other is a key aspect of that. I think that that would be disappointing to him as well. So how, how do we bring the love back though? I don't know how we bring the love back. I think it's a lack of a, a strong leadership, right? People are talking, but no one's listening. Right now, we don't have a major voice, a unifying voice pulling us together. And I, I think that I think that makes it hard. We don't have someone to rally around, you know, that we could all look at and say, you know what? I hear what he's saying. I can, I can get why we need to pull together. And they, they died so that we could have the opportunity to grow mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that we, you know, so that we could have these conversations like this and yeah. work to be pillars of our community. Yeah. Man, is there anything else you want to cover that I did not pull out of you? We can see that the schools that have the highest percent of students that are on free and reduced lunch have the lowest success rate oh, wow. in reading. This is something that we can change. When you say we, you mean like we as a community. Correct. Right. Mm. And, you know, we change the culture of our community, change us to a culture that says, you know what, books are number one, right? The Spark Foundation was started in 2018. As a nonprofit, we're relatively young. We're a small nonprofit. Um, But we have a fantastic group of supporters and people who have been there from the very beginning and who have entrusted us to take the the hard-earned money that they make and do the right thing with it. That means the world to me because this all started as a passion project that I never in my life thought would get to this point. And now that we are at this point, I always am very humbled when someone recognizes what we're doing and um, wants to support children's literacy and understand the importance of it. So I want to thank everybody who's ever provided a donation to us. And um, I want to thank you very much for reaching out and allowing me to tell my story and getting to know you so that we can not only make some cool things happen in the future, but 
that, you know, we can continue to spread the word and the importance and how this does really go back to the civil rights thing. Education in the black community and the minority community has always been key. Mm-hmm. And from the very beginning, they knew that education was the way out of our struggle. Absolutely. And we just got to keep pushing that. We um, can't lose sight of it. Mm-hmm. And, you're do- and you're doing just that, man. You are advancing the civil rights movement right now. And that's why I wanted to talk to you. I got a bonus question for you before we head out. All right. Let's All hear right. It. If you could go back in time and have lunch with any, any historical figure you can have lunch with, who would that be and what the conversation would be like? If I could go back and have lunch with anyone, it would be Nelson Mandela. Okay. Okay. That's a good. Pick. I like that. The, the conversation would really just focus around staying strong in your struggle and dedicate it to your cause. There's so many other things you can do with your time, right? Yeah. You can say, I'm okay, and go about your life. Mm. This is a man who gave up his freedom and so much of his life to help his people. Yeah. Um, how did he have the, the inner strength to continue yeah. doing that? That's the type of message I would want to hear to be able to take away. Man, oh man. Check out the Spark Foundation website at www.sparkfndn.org. Most important, ask yourself, what action can you take in your own community? Because that's what it comes down to. Listen, I appreciate the gift of your time, man. Thank you very much for what you do. Thanks for pushing the civil rights movement forward in your own way. Whatever you got to do, because we are not all supposed to be doing the same thing. Amen. And you are doing what you are supposed to be doing right now. Man, I appreciate your time, brother. Thank you. Like I said, I appreciate you uh, reaching out and having me on. I can't wait. I can't wait for part two. Yeah. (laughs) Man, thank you for being on the show, brother. I appreciate it. All right. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Yeah, bye. Bye. Man, access equals success. That was Akil Clark, founder of the Spark Foundation. Find out more about Spark, man. Go to www.sparkfndn.org or you can follow them on Facebook. Thank you for listening to the Iowa Civil Rights History Podcast. Until next time, keep reading.